the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, this was an exciting one, getting to talk with Dr. Karen DeSalvo about social determinants of health. I know uh, you were very much looking forward to it, and she definitely delivered. But uh, before we get on to introducing our wonderful co-host for this show and telling you more about Karen, how about uh, you tell people, what do we do on this show, Paul? And as always, what is the meaning of life, if you've (laughs) figured it out between now and the last time I asked you? It's for for the nerds out there. It's forty two, um, and we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, and what an expert interview we have with us tonight, um, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, talking about social determinants of health and broadly what we can do about it. But I'm not going to get into that because we have also the great Dr. Emmy Okaboto with us. Um, hi, Emmy. How are you? Good. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, we- <laughs> <laughs> That's that enthusiasm we love. Yep. We, we talk about social determinants of health and, and it is a really great topic to, to get in with Dr. DeSalvo. In particular, she is the president of the Society for General Internal Medicine. And given that she was unable to deliver her normal SGIM presidential address, we want to use this opportunity to discuss the key materials uh, with her and you, our listeners. So let me share you a bit about her. She is the chief health officer of Google Health. Yes, that Google. She is a physician (laughs) and healthcare leader working at the intersection of medicine, public health, and information technology. And at Google Health, Karen leads a team of health professionals who provide clinical guidance for the development of Google's research products and services. Prior to Google, Dr. DeSalvo was the adjunct professor of medicine and population health at University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. In this role, she inspired new generations of healthcare professionals to approach medicine through the lens of benefiting the whole community. This philosophy was honed during her time as the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and Assistant Secretary for Health in the Obama administration and while serving as health commissioner in post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans which we talk about a bit on the show. So without further ado, here is our great discussion with Dr. Karen DeSalvo. Well, Karen, thank you for joining us. Uh, in lieu of your presidential address, we we really wanted to have you on the show and just, just get to know you a little bit and of course talk about your favorite topic, which we'll get to in a second. But first, can you tell the audience a one-liner about yourself? Sure, Matt. Thank you guys for having me. I'm such a huge fan. And um, so it's a delight to be able to do this. I I appreciate it. Um, One liner about Karen. She is um, uh, a general internist who um, loves caring for patients, but also found that she loved doing that by caring for their community and building better systems that would better support them. So I've had a great journey through a whole bunch of different care and policy and practice uh, iterations. I love um, uh, 
fishing and traveling and food and uh, my husband, who's an ER doc, and we are based in New Orleans, but I've recently moved to California where I'm also very much enjoying the incredible climate um, and the incredible scenery. And for the audience, there are several fish on the wall behind her. <laughs> the I can't tell if they're taxidermied or they're just they they look are they wooden fish on the wall? That's very good. I was gonna otherwise I was gonna be worried that you didn't know where the food came from. <laughs> <laughs> we um these are these are driftwood uh fish made by uh local artisans in New Orleans and um we mostly fly fish, and we fly fish in the marsh here um, for uh, a type of, of, of one that's called redfish, but we've fly fished all over the world. It's a really peaceful, relaxing hobby. I believe it. So, Karen, one one fun thing about me is I run mostly on anxiety and guilt, and I think that <laughs> one of the best ways I do that is by amassing just a long list of books that I should be reading but just haven't gotten around to doing it yet, and this show's been really helpful with that, so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind Sharing a book recommendation doesn't have to be medical, just something that you feel like um, our listeners would would benefit from. Any book recommendations for us? Paul, I feel your pain. My, my husband is an avid reader, and he will read you know, a book every other day or whatever, and they're on math and physics and chaos and all kinds of things, and leave them on my side of the, the bed and as the next thing I should read, and the stack gets taller and taller. Um, but I'm, I'm actually appropriately right now reading John Barry's book, The Great Influenza. Um, he, he's written another great book that I, I loved, which is Rising, uh, Rising Tide about the Great Flood in, in New Orleans. Both of them are outstanding, well-researched, really interesting. The influenza one, um, if you haven't read it, is not only about the pandemic, but also about the maturation or development of American medicine. So it's, it's a quite oh. interesting book. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I will add that to the list. Great. And another question we ask a lot of our, our guests is what's some of the best advice that you've received in your career, either as a teacher or a learner or somewhere on your journey? You know, um, one of the most intense periods of my life was um, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and we were um, trying to put the community back together again, including our, our health care system and our public health system. And there were a lot of dark days and a lot of um, really um, hard months of not being sure if we could make it through or if we were going to prevail against um, sometimes adverse forces. Sounds very dramatic, but it was quite dramatic. Um, and um, uh, got a great piece of advice, a couple that are paired. One, uh, do the right thing till you get fired. <laughs> and the other is uh, illegitim illegitimate non-comparendum, which has a swear word in it. So I don't know if I can say it, but don't let the X get you down. It's just a reminder, like, just keep doing the right thing. Follow your true north um, and um, don't don't let negativity interfere with the optimism and vision that you have into the future. And I find they're very helpful pieces of advice every single day. That's great. I, I took Latin. I can't say I've ever. Was that a Latin one? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, not exactly Latin. It's a um, an iteration of Latin. When you look it up, you'll you'll see there's a um, the quote "illegitimi non corborundum" isn't isn't perfect Latin. It's and it's not pig Latin. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> I do know it's pig a, Latin. Can I, can I, it's a um, uh, iterated version of it. But you, you, can, is a you can Google. You can Google that. If I'm translating it in my head, okay. I think I, I think I know exactly what it's got it. which is excellent. <laughs> well, we were we were going to ask. Uh, we're going to talk about social determinants of health, and you've already alluded to this. Your your career experience with Hurricane Katrina, I think, is what led you to that. 
Can you tell us maybe one really memorable thing from that experience, and then we'll kind of get into a case and, and talk all about social determinants? You know, um, I have a lifelong journey towards the social determinants of health, and I won't um, pull you through all of it. But I, I think it's really relevant to say that um, practice in medicine, training there and practicing it at a place like Charity Hospital in New Orleans, you, you, you have to be uh, blind or not a human not to recognize that your patients um, had a, had many needs beyond just the clinical um, services that you were going to provide. So I walked into that storm uh, really understanding in some part of my brain that context mattered. But what happened with the storm is we were um, no longer, we healthcare medicine no longer protected by the walls. Um, people weren't coming to us. We were going to them on the street um, at open air sites, and you you couldn't you couldn't miss the visual of the fact that they didn't have a house or electricity um, uh, or a job or a place for their kids to go to school or public transportation. They it was a, just a, a blanket wiping out of any potential social driver, so the uh, or social determinant, and that was the number one thing that they would talk to us about. It wasn't their diabetes. It was. Don't prescribe the insulin. I don't have a house. I don't have anywhere to put it. Or even if I have a house, my power's not back on. So it was inescapable, I think is, is what I would say. And and the second piece about Katrina was it was a shared experience. Those of us in medicine um, um, also lost homes and power and access to schools and jobs, et cetera. So there was some inkling of, oh, I understand a bit of what it feels like to have to reprioritize your life um, and or to see that there are social barriers in the way of me doing things that I might consider ordinary. Um, so it was uh, for us um, oh, quite quite um, philosophically um, uh, change, uh, life-changing and I think um, a real call to arms in the way that we wanted to rebuild down here. And it's been a real card, call to arms for me ever since. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think maybe we'll have some time, uh, some opportunities to go back to some of those experiences as we talk about this. But Emmy's going to give us a case from Cashlack just to kick off the, the bigger discussion. Yeah, we have a 48-year-old man who has a history of chronic back pain, hypertension, and obesity, who presents with a new pain shooting down his right leg. The chronic back pain continues even after he lost his job at a warehouse four months ago. Physical exam is consistent with mild radiculopathy. When discussing physical therapy, he mentions the $20 copay from his wife's policy is too high, and it never helped in the past. With further discussion, he becomes tearful that he can no longer provide for his family and doesn't feel like leaving the house or exercising. He had to sell his car, and he feels uncomfortable walking around in the neighborhood, as his nephew was recently injured by a violent attack. At the end of the visit, he gives you a form from the electric company to qualify for payment deferral. I think it's probably a, an all-too-common case um, from the ones that, that a lot of people um, see in, in primary care. And, and you know, I think sometimes um, what happens to us, whether it's in the inpatient or outpatient setting, frankly, is... We, we see the diagnoses, hypertension in particular. We know we have a tool to treat that. <laughs> We're trained. Um, we know the evidence-based guidelines. So our, our reaction is to focus on the thing we can solve, which is not the thing that is the priority for him. Um, he, he's got um, wolves at his door, you know, literally and, um, and figurative, or I should say figuratively. The, um, and, and the natural inclination for people doctors in this environment is to tune it out. 
and say, well, that's uh, not my job to figure out how someone can get their power bill paid or deferred or um, uh, the transportation. In fact, I remember um, uh, I had a, a similar case when I was at Cashlack of a, of a, a, a patient who was asking me about bus routes um, that they had gotten a new job and and they were trying to get some help figuring out what was the right bus to take. And I was so behind in clinic and I just, I couldn't understand why this was the priority for the person whose blood pressure was 180 over 130. And, and um, I came home and I was, I, I was, you know, tell my husband about it. And he said, you know, your patient's asking you because you're the person they trust the most. And, I learned later there were a lot of other reasons, um, like uh, lack of literacy, and <clears throat> there are some some reasons that uh, he really needed help. So the compassion part was stirred in me that I need to keep my heart and mind open to be able to help. But here's the thing. Um, it is not our job to fix the social determinants of health. Um, we're trained and equipped and expected to address the medical drivers of health, but we have to have a responsibility to understand it because um, it... it is part and parcel of what's going to keep them from being well and uh, seems to be really important in, if nothing else, the recurrent use need to use the healthcare system. It, it seems like from, from some of your, your presidential blog posts, this, this statistic came up a bunch of times that a lot of health-related outcomes are tied to social determinants. Is the, is the evidence there just like overwhelmingly strong? Can you talk about which specific ones? Uh, the evidence is not great, and this is one of the biggest challenges for the um, the social determinants of health or the SDOH world. You know, like many things in medicine and health, absent good prospective randomized control trials um, and even even weaker evidence, consensus bodies come together around wooden conference tables and come up with <laughs> sets of recommendations and ideas. And the reality is. But actually, even the notion we have that 80% of health outcomes are driven by social determinants isn't really fact-based. It's consensus-based, which um, has incredible implications for the way we're thinking about applying resources to address social drivers and, and how much influence we think we can have on people's morbidity and mortality or, or um, evolution of disease. On the other hand, um, we do know that um, if if you can intervene, and we have very uh, early emerging data that if you can intervene in some social drivers like food insecurity, um, that there are some um, reasonably uh, methodologically sound research uh, that like uh, by people like Seth Berkowitz uh, at, at UNC showing that if you can address food insecurity in a low-income population prospectively, you can reduce their um, subsequent need for hospitalization. Now, not very much evidence that it actually improves their health outcomes. So really, the outcomes are more targeted at cost and, and uh, utilization. This is a it's a challenge for the field um, because it is. It, it, I think if we're going to prove the case then um, we ought to prove it, um, or if we're going to intervene, then we should find, do that methodolo- in a methodologically sound way. But I'll just I'll make a couple quick comments about that. I think the problems inherent are that it's so obvious that you can't not feed someone, right, or not house somebody. So the, the, the randomization is quite difficult, and it's a struggle for the scientific community in this space. So they look for proxies, or they look for ways to do implementation or embedded science. And um, uh, where, where I'm hopeful is that there'll be some uh, more sophisticated methodologic techniques that will begin to emerge that 
bring together the best talent from not just medicine, but what social scientists know, for example, to be able to get more at your specific question. That's, I, I would love to hear more specifically about that, because I think one of the things that I worry about and one of the things that I see in residency clinic, and I think just in practice, is we've gotten better and better at identifying at identifying. So th this is this is driven largely by social determinants of health, but I but then then what? So great, you picked it out. Congratulations on finding one of the drivers, but then what do you do about it? So I, mm -hmm. I guess I'm wondering if you couldn't sort of speak specifically, you know, to two points to sort of the utility of screening, because I think there are some interesting thoughts about that. But mm -hmm. then also once you pick it up, practically speaking at the ground level, what kind of things can you do to to address? Which I know is two gigantic questions. So Yeah, they're great. I'll give you thirty seconds and then we'll move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, there's there's actually some some good um, science done by a guy named Saul Weiner. He's a med peds physician in Chicago. Saul, um, who y'all should have on the show one day, um, it has written about the contextual. Or have you had him? The, the no, uh, I yeah. I was smiling because our show that is about to air. Well, I guess we'll have aired by the time this one does. But uh, we we were talking about his book. Uh, yeah, it's it's called On Becoming a Healer. He talks yes. about a lot about this, and I think he had a previous book that talked probably about the point that you're about to talk about. Uh, yes, um, I actually. Um, so anyway, I've known Saul for a, a while. We we were um, uh, RWJ fellows together, and he he even then years ago was working on the contextualization as a medical error. That's where I was I was going, and he's done some work um, in a variety of um, populations, including the VA, just uh, showing that that failure to understand the co someone's context, where they live, learn, work, and play, the barriers to their health, many of the things that are described uh, in the case of this man that um, uh, prevent them from adhering to a care plan or um, uh, would cause the adherence to a care plan to maybe not have as positive an, of an outcome as, as you might want because they have a, you know, uh, you put them on, on warfarin and they have a, a, an occupation that would cause them to fall off the tractor and bleed to death. So, um, that, the, so, so that, that sort of idea that um, there's some science around it matters, but there's um, uh, some interesting other um work that shows that people are more likely to adhere to care plans. Um, there's a, a, a woman at, at uh, NYU who's doing some work in that and more of the interview with the doctor. And here's where I'm going to the uh, place there, Paul, is that um, what what she has learned, Sean Thaler is her name, what she's learned is, or learning, is that you don't have to do a formal screening. You just have to talk to people about their context, uh, um, demonstrate in the in the conversation that we have with our patients um, at the bedside, in the clinic, that we think of them as a person, not just as a disease. This is the thing that we're all taught and, and know, but if you, she picks it up qualitatively in the research and those individuals have a better, um, report a better experience and also are more likely to adhere to chronic disease care plans. I am uh, personally not a fan of the screening. There's really not any evidence to show that it works. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force does not recommend um, doing it. I think that we would run the risk of um, uh, burdening uh, patients by screening them every time they touch the health system without really knowing what to do with it. Um, it so, and boy, we could talk a lot more about it, but it's, it's, it's unfortunately, I think, going down a pathway where it's like a thing we can do. We can screen people for food insecurity. The, other, the more important piece is doing something about it. And that, that, that piece um, is either got a, a series of solutions that have to do with team-based care or, uh, and or technology-based solutions that facilitate referrals. That's great, Karen. Yeah. Tell us more about the team-based care and, and mm -hmm. what that could look like for our clinics. 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you've had a history of working in federally qualified health centers. So you know well about um, FQHCs and community health centers. It's a, a, a place I spent a lot of time after Hurricane Katrina building up systems like that. So I learned about the history dating back to um, the way, um, certainly in the early days of FQHCs, that really more modeled community-oriented primary care. That was about um, understanding context, uh, helping to influence the the community where people lived and learned and worked and played, the food systems, the transportation systems, the doctor's role and responsibility in being an advocate in community, not just being an advocate for the person in the clinic right in front of them. And uh, I, I, I think the um, that that is a really broad version of team as being team with community. But in the environment of the community health center or in the, the patient-centered medical home, these are the kinds of models where um, you have the chance to, to let each person on the team focus on the set of skills that are uh, really meant for them to focus on. You know, after Hurricane Katrina, we had the chance to build up clinic practice. So I went from a place where I was seeing patients at charity and clinic, and I would write a referral on a piece of paper to go to social work and then just, you know, hope that the person was going to get to social work. Um, and um, I know it sounds archaic to y'all, but it was, you know, 2005. <laughs> and then af- and after the storm, um, we were able to build clinics where we had warm handoffs. So we had social work and um, uh, community health workers, uh, nutritionists, all in the clinic environment, modeled after the FQHC world. Of, and, and we're able to, hey, hang on a second, I'm going to send somebody in who really knows what they're doing in this space. Um, it, it, because, you you know, it seems like you need a little extra education or are you interested in learning more about. So when I say team, I really do mean um, one that happens in the um, in the outpatient environment uh, that, that would model after what we've done in, in medical homes or community-oriented primary care. On the other hand, uh, by the way, the inpatient environment or the acute environment, uh, cancer wards, um, uh, dialysis units, um, these are all, uh, or centers, these are all team-based uh, care models that, that we've been doing for years. We just haven't done it as much as in internal medicine uh, for, for some reason, which is where it's needed most. I like how you talked about partnering with the community because that was like another theme that I saw and just thinking of the idea, you had written things about the upstream and downstream. And I think like we're so far downstream. If I'm seeing a 60-year-old with you know, diabetes and obesity and um, just has lots of social disadvantages, it's, it's too, you know, in some senses, it's too late. I can, I can help mitigate some of that. But like working with the communities, um, were there any specific programs or anything you can think of or, or health systems that you know of that have actually like had success stories where they've built up community programs that are helping people, you know, catch people at a young age before they develop morbidity. And that, now you're, now you're really asking for, for a lot. Okay. Um, let, let me, let me just, um, meaning, meaning that the attention span in the U S context to have programs that are that longitudinal is unfortunately not real. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are great models of especially integrated delivery systems like Geisinger, Intermountain, Kaiser, where they have accountability for a population and have been able to build out uh, not only great clinical care, but um, social care uh, as a partner to that. And um, for example, Kaiser um, started their social determinants journey uh, pretty downstream um, and pretty one one off focused focus on the one the one patient in front of them and uh, you know if you uh, fill out a f- 
uh, fill out a survey and you have transportation challenges, we'll hook you up with rideshare, right? So you can get to your healthcare appointment. But over the course of the their learning journey, they um, were able to begin, for example, mapping, doing uh, heat mapping of where their patient population was less likely to have or more likely to have transportation challenges and um, use that not only to think through um, how to prioritize the resources they could deliver, but begin working with the um, the regional transportation system to think about where to add new uh, bus stops uh, on the route or, or train stations on the route so that people could have access not just to healthcare, but to work and um, school and other um, other needs that they might have. There's a model of that that happened in uh, Houston that was more of an employee-focused model um, with, with um, a company there that partnered with the food system to add more food bank outlets. I think a lot, and a lot of these are, um, they're great stories of how systems have thought, well, we can do the, the downstream thing for the person in the emergency room right in front of us. We can begin to think about our population for whom we have responsibility, but really they live in a context um, where there's insufficient food system, insufficient transportation, insufficient housing. And and so they want to begin to, as a healthcare system, uh, partner with, with local government, state government, or, or even uh, others, particularly public health, to see that they can fill in the gaps uh, in those systems. We, we actually, um, when I was in um, in the in the administration, we had an effort around that called Public Health 3.0, which talked about how local communities come together to create the conditions in which everyone can be healthy through partnership. It's a place where healthcare um, is so incredibly needed, but it's a really hard place for us because we think a lot about patching people up when they come in, and it's really uh, hard for us to think about how to prevent that from from happening even just a little bit further upstream. But I mentioned several institutions that have done good models and uh, there, there's plenty more out there. In case the, in case folks want to look, there's a, a group called um, Root Cause that has a website where you can find a lot of examples of how healthcare systems have partnered with others in the community to, to change the context. Yeah, it makes me think you had sent out a piece from the National Academy of Medicine that had kind of a framework to think of, of social determinants. How did that go? That was a really fantastic experience. It was my first consensus panel with the National Academy of Medicine, and um, uh, it was chaired by uh, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins Domingo, who's at UCSF. And we had a great multidisciplinary group, including uh, social workers and um, medical legal professionals, that really pu- uh, pushed us to think about the charge, which was how could the medical system move upstream? How could you integrate social care into the delivery of healthcare? And lots of great stuff packed in that report, frankly, um, including some some great uh, examples of what healthcare systems are doing, what state Medicaid programs are doing. So I think a lot of uh, things that are, are worthy of reading some of the, um, the, the call-out boxes. We, we uh, very much, though, wanted to provide kind of a framework for, for medicine to be able to think about how to address the, the social determinants of health in the, co- in the healthcare context. And we came up with this um, uh, taxonomy that has these four A's that are not necessarily on a continuum or mutually exclusive. So I'll just say that. On the other hand, I, what my experience in, in uh, um, seeing health systems on this journey is that they do tend to move um, uh, through kind of a, a pathway of, of really understanding uh, what 
social drivers are in their population and how to address them. Uh, the first is about awareness, and we've talked a bit about that. Awareness can take the form of an actual screener. It can take the form of pulling secondary data, either from your own system or externally, to do some um, hot spotting to, to really get a feel for what are the challenges in the population that that you serve, um, uh, not, not only um, broadly, but sometimes even more specific areas like, say, access to transportation. The, the next bucket is to adjust uh, care based upon based upon where there might be a, a, a social determinant of health challenge. So if you took the example of transportation, what you may do if you knew that individual um, didn't have access to transportation, like the like in the case that you presented, you would uh, go out of your way to make sure you could do telephone follow-up um, or some other means of follow-up so they didn't have to, to um, come, come back in if it wasn't necessary. The um, third area is about assistance. So um, providing actual assistance for the person to either get back in, typically it's to get to the healthcare system for follow-up visits. So in the case of transportation, providing, say, uh, rideshare vouchers or uh, cab vouchers. The fourth area is about alignment. So um, that is stepping up the game to not just help the one person with your one system, but really beginning to partner, um, whether that's with with uh, uh, teams, uh, multidisciplinary teams in the healthcare environment or with partners out in the um in the community. So, you know, uh, for example, in the in the case of uh, of transportation again, uh, could think about how to create a a, um, a time sharing or, or bank for transportation, right? So that uh, you are maybe partnering with other healthcare uh, systems in the community to really to increase the capacity of of supports for for patients. Um, and the final one is advocacy, which, um, as y'all can tell, based on my career, is one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> since that's where that's where my journey landed me, um, and uh, is is really about promoting uh, policies that will fundamentally change the context. So whether that's uh, adding adding a particular uh, stop on the bus line or changing the pricing of, of bus fares uh, and or thinking about how to redistribute the healthcare enterprise so it's really in people's neighborhoods and, and closer to home. So the five A's, awareness, adjustment, assistance, alignment, and advocacy. Thank you. Those are wonderful. Paul, I think you wanted to learn, you had you had something you want to ask about. You know, I, I, so I, I'm not sure if the listeners um, got the behind the scenes glimpse of the fact that my computer utterly collapsed during our conversation. <laughs> so, okay. okay so you're, it, that, that, I thought you're being polite. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. This has been just uh, smooth as silk um, audience at home, but it, saying that did happen. It would get me to thinking about sort of the role of technology in sort of addressing mm-hmm. some of these social determinants of health. So it's clearly, I've, you've mentioned it a couple of times and clearly we have seemingly a lot of resources at our disposal, but it's, it's, it's hard for me to figure out what that would look like sort of aligning those um, to be helpful in, in, in this specific area. So could you tell me some examples of how technology might be useful in addressing social determinants of health? Yeah, we have a, a, a chapter in the report, the National Academy of Medicine report on data and technology in uh, supporting social determinants of health. And there is this um, crazy table in there about all the crazy ways that we might like drones for food delivery, um, which may not be that crazy in the near term, though. Um, <laughs> so, so just to let you know, there are plenty of really innovative ways that it can be done. Uh, I think some of the, the near term uh, opportunities, though, are just to improve the interoperability of data uh, between the healthcare system and the community-based organizations that are partnered together to address the medical and, and, and social care needs of the individual and populations. And you know the um, the the hope is is that we don't go down a pathway 
as we stand up the digital infrastructure for social determinants of health, the food banks, the transportation uh, and support entities, the housing agencies, but create a set of interoperable standards and an open system that's permissioned by the consumer so they get to decide when and where their data is shared and that they have access to seeing who knows who has has their hands in their data. I mean, take the case, take the, the some of the earliest work was done actually at a Parkland um, and and they were focusing on um, homeless individuals, many of whom had significant um, chronic and mental health issues. And so, you know, if you you were referring someone out of the hospital into the, um, the the shelter, there was a transfer of information about the person's TB status or um, as something else that was that was clinically relevant for that environment. There may need to be a housing agency that gets that information when the person gets some um, supportive housing and some additional resources that would need to come from food support services um, or transportation services. So you can see how very quickly you want to have an array of organizations that um, would need to talk to each other. And these digital platforms, um, if people, what, one that's very uh, publicly available is called Aunt Bertha. And at, at its base, it's just like an online directory. It's so but great. it does, it is really great. Aaron's wonderful and it does this totally from his heart. Um, but he also has a business behind it, which, which supports referrals. And there are a suite of these other tools available. There's a group called Siren, Social Intervention. Research and Evaluation Network out of UCSF um, that has a, a, a maintained a kind of a compendium of these has a report that came out now it's probably a year and a half ago but there hasn't been much change in the technology so you can purchase a product off the shelf um, uh, you can there's free ones that are available and then a lot of the HR companies are starting to build out the technology themselves so I think we're going to see that the um, the the doctor in the clinic at the bedside and or their team is going to increasingly have access to um, a, a more facilitated automated referral with a closed loop. So you know that it happened and the person got the service that they need, but also so that the person knows what service is coming to them. With, with some of the social, sorry, and this is another one of these big questions mm-hmm. with these social determinants of health. So many aspects of them seem to be unfairly stigmatized, whether it's food insecurity or substance use disorder or mental health issues. Has within the limited experience that we have, has there been any patient resistance to sort of sharing that information among community resources? It's a it's a really important question. So um, let me just start by um, making sure everybody knows because we've kind of glossed over it that the social determinants of health. Um, there's a there's uh, you know clear definitions not only in the National Academy report but it pulls from what the World Health Organization and um, the um, Healthy People. 2020 definition. It's a it's a a definition that includes where we live, including environmental exposures, safety, publicly and also in our own homes. It includes our our how whether we're housed, uh, educational quality and experience, economic uh, uh, opportunity and status, uh, racism, institutional racism, um, and then uh, the how we behave in that environment. So so it's a it's a really broad set of categories um, that that um, we're, we're all trying to tackle. We do, though, tend to think of social determinants of health as affecting communities of color or people who are poor. But I do think I want people to really um, understand that when you survey the U.S. population, uh, in just about every survey that I've seen, more than half report some negative social determinant of health. In these COVID times, it could be social isolation and loneliness um, uh, for a quarter of the working p- 
people in this country, it's joblessness, right? So at any moment, we're all just a day away from having the same challenges. What's different is the resiliency and um, sort of the generational nature of it. So there are communities of color, for example, who for generations have been negatively impacted by the social determinants of health. Um, this is such an important concept, though, for us to understand, because if we try to judge whether someone has been negatively affected by their social determinants of health based upon the color of their skin or um, w- uh, the type of clothing that they're wearing, then we're going to miss opportunities to help people. And I know you know that, Paul. It's just, I want to just drive that point home. And it's one of the reasons I very often use seniors as the example, um, because because um, s- seniors are really struggle with a lot of, of the, the you know, high profile social determinants of health, loneliness, transportation challenges, food insecurity. I think this is just, um, so, so no one's immune. That's the, the takeaway. Um, some people just, uh, don't have the resiliency to overcome it. And it's, that's why it's more incumbent upon us to kind of take a universal precautions approach and think we're just going to assume that everybody needs some help and find some way to, to get to that information and, and, and take some action. I think we're, I think we're short on time. So. Okay. Paul, Emmy, any last minute questions before we get take home points and and let Karen go? I mean, so many, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for a different time, we could go for hours. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, we didn't even we didn't even get to Google. So yeah, I know. I think this there. has been yeah. I think this has been a great uh, a great introduction to this. We've talked about this like I maybe peripherally on the show, but never dedicated a full episode to it. So I think this is a great introduction. And can I, can I just, um, one more point that I want to make is yeah. for the, for the, for the, the, you know, audience, the physicians who are in practice thinking about, um, their future ahead. One of the reasons it really matters for us to know is not just because it matters for our patients and their health outcomes, but because we are going to be increasingly held accountable for, um, whether or not grandma goes to bed hungry and there are quality metrics being developed there are payment systems being considered and tested in a number of states around the country. So this isn't just a fluffy white hat idea. It might start to actually hit your dashboards. And I think that's why we have to know and get involved in this conversation so that we're a part of the solution set and not just having to check some boxes. Right. That's why I'm making faces. I'm thinking of the same thing. I'm seeing your faces. Yeah. Like- <laughs> This 75-year-old patient with metastatic cancer is not on a statin. Would you like to correct? Like, no, I'm, I'm good. Like, I, you get to worry about it sort of going down that pathway where you're not. No, we just, yeah, we should, we do not want to medicalize this. We need to partner to solve the challenges and we need, but, but that's going to require us to really lean in as a, as a profession. I think that almost serves as great take-home points, but if you had <laughs> anything else, uh, I would love to hear it, but. I, we could just fade fade into we'll the outro. Fade, fade fade into fade into COVID. Yeah, and oh. I hope we'll, I hope you all are well. And thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. This has been great. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> I don't think just, your heart was in that. Just I, <laughs> so resigned, a little bit disgusted. And you know what? You're right. That is the right way to feel. That is exactly how that should be delivered. Strong work. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. 
We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Emmy Elizabeth Okamoto. And I've been Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you are presumably hearing now, as well as to Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing. And I remain, as always, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.